Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. If you will, turn in your copy of Scripture to Philippians chapter 4. We're continuing in our series, Worship and Worldview, the Intersection of Church and Culture. And this text of Scripture kind of highlights who we are to be as Christians in a world that is filled with kind of chaos and discord. As you look around, it's not hard to see the division that is present in our culture, whether it's political division or interpersonal or relational. Uh, It's not hard to see all of the anxieties and worries that all too often encompass our, our cultural experience. In fact, sometimes the news media is bent on creating more worries and creating more anxieties in our, in our hearts and lives. It's not hard to see the entitlement and the ingratitude that is present. And of course, we all see the headlines and the news stories about all of the things that take place. That you just Your mind is blown by what came into the thought of a person to do an act of evil and an act of wicked. And, and the reality is... Our world is filled with all sort of chaos and sin and unrighteousness and wickedness. Uh, by the way, here's an aside. I, I'm, I'm a part of a Facebook group like Wilkes County. Um, kind of there, there's, a, there's an information request there. And there was a person that put on there at one particular point, uh, hey, would you recommend a church that I could go to that doesn't talk about bad news, that just talks about good news? Because I know the world's bad. And I just want to commend, there was nobody at Wilkesboro Baptist Church that invited them here. Because here's the reality. Let me say this, let me say this clearly. It is good that we talk about good news. We talk about it all the time. But sometimes for the good news to make sense, we have to recognize that our world is not full of good news. There's a lot of bad news. There's a lot of sinfulness and wickedness out there. The reality is, and I wish this weren't the case... We as Christians are not immune to these realities. Folks, we're not immune to evil thoughts. We're not immune to ingratitude and entitlement. We're not immune to anxiety and worry. So many of us are covered up by those types of of things. And I'm not talking about the kind of anxieties you have to see a doctor for and need some medical attention. I I realize we're talking about a different thing there. I'm talking about the kind of anxieties that so so often permeate us as Christians. Jesus called worry a sin. Paul says here, don't be anxious in our text. We're going to read in a moment. They permeate our lives. And of course, I wish I could say the church was absent discord. But all too often, even in in and among Christians, there's discord and dissension because somebody wants their way and another person wants their way. Folks, we as Christians should look different than that. That's the whole point. That's the reason this text fits this sermon series. Because God wants us to look different than the rest of the world. He doesn't want us to be like everybody else. He wants us to be, to, to be like Christ. To express a Christ-like character in the world in which we live. Let's read the text. And, and then we'll unpack the, these practices for counterformational Christian living. Philippians 4.4 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness or gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true... 
whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Did you catch that word? Practice these things. These imperatives that we're going to look at are for practices that God expects us as his people to embody, to embrace, to, to put into place in our daily living. They're things that if we ignore them, we'll miss out on the promises that God has for us and the joys that God wants to give us. If we put them into practice, then we can experience the peace and the presence of God that he invites us to experience based on our text here. A few weeks ago, we talked about some of the cultural liturgies and the formational things that happen in our world. In other words, we talked about the way that our phones or our videos or what we watch, what we listen to is shaping us. It's forming us in a particular way. And the things that are secular, that are outside of God's expectations, are forming us in ways that are not godly and don't turn us into Christ-like followers of Jesus. These practices are the opposite of that. They're aimed at, the reason Paul gives them to the church here, he gives them to the church because God wants us to look more like Jesus this afternoon after we gather at church than we did when we walked in to the worship service. He wants to shape us by the things that we practice. Now, why do we practice? Well, we practice because if you want to be good at something, you have to practice at it. An athlete practices if you want to be a good swimmer, you can't just learn how to swim and, and go jump in, in, in a race. If you want to be a good basketball player, you can't take five jump shots and go home. You have to practice over and over and over again. The best athletes are those who spend hours and hours and hours practicing. Same thing with music. Retta is a fantastic organist and pianist, but she practices she doesn't just rely on her talent, which she has a great amount of talent. She comes in weekly and practices so that what she plays in a worship service is, is, is as blessed as it possibly could be. And that's exactly what we're talking about here in the text. You and I as Christians should embrace these practices so that we can be formed in a countercultural way to bring honor and glory to Christ and to look more and more like Jesus. Jerry Bridges puts it this way. He said, practicing godliness requires spiritual exercise. And I'm not talking about works-based salvation at all. I'm not saying we work for a relationship with God. The Bible teaches that the gospel and our relationship with God is like this. We don't work for our salvation, but we do work from our salvation. It's like we've been chosen to be a part of the team. We're a part of the family of God. But in order to be the kind of family member, Christ follower that we ought to be, we ought to put into practice the things that reflect Jesus. And we're going to look at what those practices are here in the text. Dallas Willard says, God's not opposed to works, God, excuse me, God is opposed to works earning our salvation, but he's not opposed to effort, that means works, from our salvation. Living that out in a faithful way. Let me, let me make an aside here. I love our students. I love our children. I love our student ministry and kids ministry. Uh, this past Wednesday night, our middle schoolers, and there was a pile of them that went to Hope Ministry and served on Wednesday night. They, they, just, they just served. 
Folks, James Smith puts it this way, and he's writing about student ministry. He says, it might be a boring congregation that actually does more to shape their loves and longing precisely by rehearsing the biblical story week in, week out, in practices that are at work in their hearts even if they don't realize it. He goes on to write, the Christian faith is the practice of many practices. Not because faith is works, but precisely because such practices and disciplines are habituations of the Spirit. To be introduced to such disciplines is to be given on-ramps into the Spirit's power. Listen, our student ministry does fun things. They've gone to the block and gone to carowinds and they go to camp. But the, the preeminent structure of our student ministry is opening up the Bible and learning what God's Word teaches us. And helping us to live that out in embodied ways. It's, that's I know that may not be the coolest thing in the world for students, but do you realize carowinds trips aren't going to change hearts and lives? God's Word changes hearts and lives. And for us as Christians, we can have all kind of big, wonderful things that go on in our Christian experience. I mean, Paul had the Damascus Road. But Paul doesn't tell the church at Philippi, go seek out a Damascus Road experience. What does Paul say? He says, practice the faith in these regular, ongoing Mundane, every day, every week ways. Why? Because the practice of our Christian faith is what shapes us or reforms us into the kind of people that God wants us to be. It's a partnership. It's God working through the Holy Spirit and through His Word as we put into practice what God has taught us in His Word that reforms us into the kind of people that God wants us to be. And what are these practices? Paul gives us four specific ones here in the text. They're imperatives, meaning that in the text, in the Greek language, Paul gave them as a command. They're an order. They're an expectation. The first one is this. We are to rejoice in the Lord. It's the first practice that counterforms us from society. We're to rejoice in the Lord. And Scripture, when it says something once, it's important. But Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always, and then he repeats himself, again, I say rejoice, meaning that the, the, the practice of Christian living is to be a practice of living out joy. To rejoice is to rejoy. In other words, it's to remind ourselves in what we say, in what we sing, in what we think, and what we do, and how our body functions, that we are in the joy of the Lord, that we are celebrating what God has done for us. This is both an emotional practice as well as a decisional practice. There are times when we feel joy. This is not a criticism of the 11 o'clock service, but at the 930 service, when our congregation sang, Be Still, I had goosebumps. Our congregation was singing, and God just spoke and moved. There's a feeling of joy associated with the truth of Scripture and the truth of a song sung. I didn't feel that at 11 o'clock. But that doesn't make that song any less true at 11 o'clock than what I felt at 9.30. God does give us the opportunity to experience the emotional attachment of joy many times in our Christian life. But most often, the decision to rejoice is a decision, not an emotional experience. If we're waiting always on an emotional experience, we're going to be waiting a long time. What we need is to make a decision that we're going to rejoice. That we're going to smile whether we feel like it or not. That we're going to sing whether we feel like it or not. That we're going to praise whether we feel like it or not. Why? Because that is an aspect of us rejoicing. Say, but I don't really feel like it. You don't know what's going on in my life. Yeah, I got a lot going on. I hurt. 
When I wake up, I hurt. And I'm struggling, and I'm going through this, and I'm going through that. That's why the prepositions and the prepositional phrases in Scripture are important. Paul said, rejoice in the Lord. He's writing to Christians. He's not saying we rejoice because of our circumstances. Because if our rejoicing were based on our circumstances, then we might not rejoice sometimes. We might feel like we don't want to rejoice sometimes. I don't feel like I want to rejoice a lot of times. You as well. But we're to rejoice where? In the Lord. Writing to Christians, it means that you and I as Christians ought to always have a sense of joy and a relationship with Jesus Christ. Why? Because you're not on a pathway to eternal separation from God anymore. You're not going to wake up when you die in hell. You're going to wake up in heaven in the very presence of God to meet my Savior face to face. That's where you're going to be as a follower of Jesus. So we have a reason to rejoice Regardless of what our circumstances tell us, regardless of what our body tells us, we have a reason to rejoice. And Paul says we are to rejoice. That is to be a regular, purposed practice in the life of the Christian. We are to constantly and always be people who rejoice. Why single out joy? Lewis Allen in his book, The Preacher's Catechism, puts it this way. Why single out joy when joy is so often crowded out by almost anything else? The reason is that joy, like nothing else, shows whether we really believe the gospel. Joy is gospel authenticity. Joy is not an emotional buzz, an escape from the difficulties we face. To know Jesus means to taste and want to taste even more the delights of peace with the Father who cares for us and smiles on us, the Son who journeys with us and the Spirit who empowers us. Crushingly hard days come. And conscious fellowship with God may be overshadowed for a season. But the triune God is with us. He is our joy. Joy in Christ and His grace is the most convincing sign that the gospel has won our hearts. Why is it then that so many Christians look like they woke up sucking on lemons? You ever seen somebody like that? They're just ill all the time. They're grumpy. They're angry, they're frustrated, they're disappointed, they're causing discord. Why? Well, they're they're not rejoicing. They're not thinking about what they have in the Lord. They're not practicing their faith in a way that acknowledges who God is. Christians of of all people in the whole world, Christians ought to be the ones that can smile and rejoice no matter what else is going on. Why? Because we have the Lord with us no matter where we go. He is always and ever present in our midst. So we're to rejoice always. And what helps us rejoice always when we intentionally make plans to rejoice regularly. When our family travels, we will almost always turn on our worship service. On on Sunday, we'll we'll watch, and I've watched some good sermons, heard some good sermons. I like hearing from our congregation or our our, our folks who preach. Uh, Tad's sermon last week was excellent, and Gary preached uh, back earlier in the summer, and Vince preached uh, months back. And I love hearing others preach to us what God's Word teaches. And it's encouraging. I I like hearing that. I like hearing the songs sung and and seeing that on a television screen. It's pretty neat to be able to to go somewhere else and, and see folks from home. Right, But when I watch a sermon or a worship service or part of a worship service from a screen on my couch, while that's convenient, there's something missing. 
Our family doesn't stand up and sing with our congregation when we're watching at home. We don't, we don't celebrate in the room like we would celebrate in the congregational gathering of God's people. In fact, every single time I'm away from church, I miss church. I don't just miss the event of preaching. I love to preach and God's called me to do it. But I miss being here. I miss seeing your smiles. I, I miss seeing the joy on your faces. I miss turning around and listening to and watching you sing. I miss hearing you sing. It's something that the God has purposed in the life of his family, his church. He wants us to be a people that regularly practice rejoicing. Say, how do I do that on a regular basis? I'm going to give you something to try. And, and you've got another opportunity in our worship service today. I dare you to try to sing. Try to sing and not smile. No, I, I mean it. When we sing the truths about God's word, we're, we're putting our body, and the psalmist said it this way, I rejoice in your salvation. And then he went on to say, with my whole body I rejoice. Probably because he was dancing, maybe because he was dancing and singing. When we put our body in the place and say, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. I've tried to rejoice all week. I knew this sermon was coming, and I've tried to rejoice. You know what I had to do sometimes to rejoice? I had to open my mouth and speak words either in prayer or in praise. Because, yeah, I can tell my heart to rejoice... I can say that I'm rejoicing. I can say there's a smile on my face. But rejoicing can't go very long before it becomes an embodied practice. So we're to rejoice in the Lord always. And a great way to rejoice in the Lord always is to rejoice in the Lord weekly. I'll tell you, it's really hard to rejoice in the Lord day by day, moment by moment, if we neglect the regular pattern of gathered worship where what we're supposed to do when we come together is to worship. So first practice, rejoice in the Lord. Second practice is let your gentleness be known. Now this is an interesting construction. It's still an imperative. Paul is making a command. He said, let your reasonableness be known or gentleness be known to everyone. It's an imperative. It's an expectation, but it's in the passive voice. Meaning that the implication is that we're not the ones who are determining whether or not we're being gentle. Okay, You may feel like you're a gentle person. You may indeed be a gentle person, but you know who gets to decide whether you're a gentle person? Your spouse does. Or your kids do. Or your grandkids. I realize for you grandparents, it's a whole lot easier for you to be gentle with your grandparents than it was for you to be gentle with your kids. I get that. But it is our obligation as Christians to let our gentleness be known. In other words, what God expects is that others around us would say about us, that we are gentle people. That we are people who reflect gentleness and reasonableness to others. Now, what does gentleness mean? Last week, I, I received a, an email from um, Elizabeth Thornton, one of our church members. And, and this is Max Lucado's devotion on this scripture. He puts it this way. He says, the Greek word translated gentleness describes a temperament that is seasoned and mature. That is sober-minded and watch this, contagiously calm. That's what gentleness is. It's not weakness. It's not some kind of softness as in a, a constant passivity. Jesus was gentle, but Jesus was very, very strong. No one is ever stronger than Jesus. In fact, strength is reflected in the fact that he could be gentle even when suffering. 
I mean, think about it. The entire weight of the Roman Empire and the weight of the religious leaders of his own day was pressed against him on Calvary, and Jesus went through Calvary. Not angry, but calm, gentle. Why? Because he wanted people to know that God is a God of gentleness and grace and mercy and compassion. What what does gentleness look like? Uh, Jerry Bridges describes gentleness as the way we would handle a carton of exquisitely crystal, exquisite crystal glasses. Meaning that that there would be a box that says handle with care, fragile. That, That we would be careful with it. Gentleness reflects the idea that we are careful with one another. It it, it reminds us that you and I as humans are fragile. In some ways, we're easily broken, easily pained, easily hurt. Now, I realize humans are some of the most resilient beings that God ever created. Some of you have gone through some things that, that would make me shudder if I knew the entirety of your story. And God brought you through it. And God has strengthened you in the midst of your difficulty and, and, your, and your challenges. But all of us should be honest enough to say that no matter what we've been through, the things that other people do to us, the brokenness and the abuse and the things that are said, even if we make it through it, they leave us scarred, they leave us vulnerable, they leave us pained. And and Christians are not to be the kind of people that act that way toward others. Christians are to be gentle with one another. In other words, our our way that we treat each other should be looking at every single one around us and remembering that you are fragile and you should be cared for or you you should be related to with care. Not like oversensitivity, I don't mean it that way, but a recognition that we're to be gentle with others. I mean, let me, let me illustrate it this way. When was the last time Jesus yelled at you? When was the last time Jesus nagged you? That's not the way God relates to us. God is gentle. He doesn't nag. He doesn't yell. I'll be honest with you. I've been convicted about a lot of things and a lot of sermons I've preached. I've not been convicted... Uh, uh, about anything as much as I've been convicted about this one in my own life in the last week or so. I have a 12-year-old son and a 9-year-old son. I'm not always gentle as a parent. I'm not always full of grace as a parent. I'm not always kind as a parent. I'm not always soft-voiced. I mean, you hear me as your pastor, and I I don't know if you put pastors on pedestals or anything like that. You shouldn't. We're just normal people, just like, just like all of you. We are guilty of sins and flaws and failures. Uh, but I, sometimes I yell and raise my voice and say things I shouldn't say. And God's convicted me about this because that's not the way Jesus treats us. Jesus is gentle. And you know what would be incredibly countercultural is for you and I as Christians to treat everyone around us with gentleness. Co-workers, employees, grandchildren, children, spouses, neighbors. Not be people who have to have our way, but be people who are gentle. Let your gentleness be known. A third practice, make your request known to God. There are actually a couple of imperatives in this section. Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. It's a command. It echoes what Jesus taught in Matthew 6. Worrying is a sin. We're not to be anxious. But instead of being anxious with prayer, that's a general word for prayer. That's the kind of prayer where we don't know what to say, so we pray, God help me. God help him. God help, my, my, God help that person. 
and it's just a general prayer. There's room for that in Christian life. We need to pray general prayers. We also need to pray very specific ones. Supplications are very specific prayers. That's where we bring a need before God in a very specific manner and we entrust it to God. We ask Him to intervene. And by the way, God loves to answer both general and specific prayers. I will just give you this piece of advice. The more specific you pray, the easier it is for you to see God's answers. I've been praying for a person for weeks. Actually, for longer than weeks. And I know some people have been praying for a person for way longer than that. That person was at the 930 service on Sunday. Today, God's answering some prayers in, in people's lives. And we ought to pray. We ought not be anxious. We ought to pray generally. We ought to pray in supplication. That's specifically. But we ought to pray with thanksgiving. That doesn't mean that we're to pray being thankful for what we experience. But we're to be thankful in whatever we experience. Why? Because our God is with us. In everything that we go through, God is able to work in our midst. So we're not to be anxious, but we're to pray in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. You might feel like prayer is a crutch, a help, a reflection of weakness. And you would be correct if that's the way you felt. That's exactly what prayer is. Prayer is an acknowledgement that we're not able any longer to fix a situation. You know where our anxieties come from? Our anxieties come from the things we're trying to control. So some of us are trying to control a spouse. And some of us are trying to control children. And some of us are trying to control our jobs. And some of us are trying to control somebody else. And some of us are trying to fix a certain situation in and around our lives. And some of us unfortunately, are are trying to fix Washington, D.C. by watching all the news we can watch and being frustrated and angry at all the stuff that's going on in politics. And here's what we're doing. We're holding on to all of those things. And if you haven't figured it out yet, you can't change your spouse and you can't fix your kids and you can't change the heart of your neighbor. And certainly, we're not going to do anything about fixing Washington, D.C. Yes, you ought to vote. You ought to be involved. And I'm not saying ignore politics. I'm saying we're not going to be able to fix it by our stresses and angers and frustrations. It's just not going to happen. But here's what we insist on doing, holding on to it, being anxious about it, trying to control it. You know what prayer is? Prayer is letting go of those things that we're holding on to trying to control and fix and bringing them before God. And that's where Paul makes that next imperative. Make your request known to God. Take those things that you're trying to control and leave them with the only one who can fix them. It's God's job to fix the person that you want fixed. It's God's job to change a heart. It's God's job to change a situation. In fact, God's the only one that can do anything about those things. And so what is our job? Our job is to treat prayer like it's supposed to be. And God does answer prayer, by the way. He intervenes. He changes hearts and lives. But prayer is much more about God changing me and my perspective about trusting in God than it is about getting that situation fixed. And sometimes here's what we do. We suppose we know what God ought to do. So we talk to God kind of like this. Say, God, you know that person over there? That person over there needs a lightning bolt, and they need to be judged. Or that person over there needs to be changed. They're a prideful person. My husband, he is doing all sort of things that annoy me. My wife, she's doing all sort of things that annoy me. God, would you just fix that part of my spouse or my children or whoever it is? And we pray like that, supposing like if we know what God ought to do. 
That's not what prayer is. Prayer is bringing our request to God, putting that person in God's hands, and trusting that God is the one who's responsible for knowing what needs to happen in their lives. And this comes with a promise. When we bring our requests to God, acknowledging that He's in control, surrendering to Him, He makes a promise. Notice the promise He makes. And, verse 7, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Guard your hearts and minds. That, that's the inflow where we think about things. It's the outflow where we speak about things and work things in, in our lives. It, it's all of that. He will guard. That word guard, the Greek word, is a word for garrison. In other words, God puts a fort around our hearts. And he protects us with his peace but we will not experience the peace that God promises if we don't follow the practice that God demands. You want God's peace? You have to bring your request to Him in prayer. You're not just going to automatically get His peace. I mean, God gives you peace through relationship with Jesus, but how do we access relationship with Jesus? Most often, we do so through prayer by asking His forgiveness. He invites us to pray. And there are too many Christians going through life without peace. Do you know why you're going through life without peace? Probably because you're not praying. You're trying to control it all. You're trying to hold on to it. You're trying to solve it all. We need to bring our request before God. I wish I could say that I have the peace of God that passes all understanding all the time. I wish I could say that. I, don't, I can't say that. But I can say this. There have been times in my life where I have a peace that passes understanding. I can't explain it. I can't tell you how I got it, other than God gave it. And it is a wonderful place to be. But the way we access that, Christian, is through the practice of prayer. The fourth practice, it's found in the text, is think on the good things. Verse 8, finally, brothers, think on what is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise... We're to think on these things. Why does he move to the mind? Jerry Bridges puts it this way in his book, The Practice of Godliness. Our minds are mental greenhouses where unlawful thoughts, once planted, are nurtured and watered before being transplanted into the real world of unlawful actions. People seldom fall suddenly into gluttony or immorality. These actions are savored in the mind long before they are enjoyed in reality. And thought life, then, is our first line of defense in the battle of self-control. The gates to our thought lives are primarily our eyes and ears. What we see or read or hear largely determines what we think. You wonder where all the chaos and the wicked and evil things in our world come from. They come from the heart that is des desperately wicked and deceitful, as Jeremiah describes it. They come from the thoughts. Before any person, a man or a wife, engages in adultery, they've thought about it. Before a person commits murder, they've thought about it. Before a person breaks the law and steals something, they've imagined how they would go about stealing something. Or they've imagined the possibility of it. Or they've imagined what it would feel like. In other words, the thought life is the starting point for all of our actions, whether they're good or bad. And so Paul says, not in a legalistic fashion, but in an overall general fashion, he says, Christian, what you're to do, you're to think about the things that are good and true and beautiful. You're to think about the things that, that matter. You're to think about things that are true. That's a general word for truth. So some of you need to stop watching the news. Because <laughs> if you watch one side and then you watch the other side, somebody's not telling the truth. And maybe both of them aren't telling the truth. 
Listen, what do we do? We, we get caught up in worrying about all this stuff over here and we're not thinking about what's true and thinking about what's honorable and what is just. In other words, what he's telling us is think about the things that, that express the rightness and righteousness of God. You get cut off in traffic. What I'd like to do to that person who treated me unfairly by cutting me off You know, those thoughts that go through our mind. And I get it. I know everybody's reactive. But it's when we're thinking about that thing 10 minutes later and an hour later. That's when it's a problem, right? We've dwelled on what is not just. We need to think about what is just, what is pure. I mean, clearly, one of the things that Paul is articulating here is that there should be no room for sexual immorality in our thoughts. No room for pornography, no room for lust. It shouldn't be there. That's not a thought that should be in our minds because if those are the thoughts in our minds, then our actions are eventually going to follow into some kind of sinful pattern of behavior that is irreparable. So what do we do? We think about what's pure. In other words, what Paul is telling us is that in order to not think about evil things, we need to consciously and intentionally think about good things, lovely things, he says, commendable things, excellent things. Right things, just things, pure things. John Stott described it this way. One of the highest and noblest functions of a man's mind is to listen to God's word and so to read his mind and think his thoughts after him both in nature and in scripture. Hey, what do I think about in place of all these things that are in our world? In place of all the things I want to stream or want to listen to or want to read? And I'm not trying to be legalistic and saying you can't ever listen to anything secular or read anything secular or watch anything on a streaming platform. What I am telling you is if we're constantly inputting all sort of things that are not pure, commendable, just, and right, we're not going to think like Christ. You can't put all that in all the time and think like Jesus. It doesn't happen. So as Christians, we have the privilege to think God's thoughts after him. To read his word and hear what he has thought in history, what he is thinking in the present, and what he's doing in our world. And his word is a framework for that. That's why it's so important that we read scripture daily. It's why we read scripture multiple times in a worship service. That's why I'm not afraid to read it at the beginning of a sermon and keep reading it when we're in the sermon. That's why in our discipleship groups we hold one another accountable for reading scripture because it is God's thoughts at work in our lives. And any way that God speaks into our situation, is a way for our thought process to be about what God wants it to be about. We're to think on good things. Let me close with this. We know that we are responsible for the spiritual formation of our own lives. And what I mean by that is we have a part to play. God is the one that redeems and rescues but we partner with him. In other words, if you don't have joy in your life, it's because you're not rejoicing. Okay? If, if, if you're not gentle, it's because you've chosen not to be gentle. If you have anxiety and worry that covers you up, it's because you're not praying. If, if you have situations in your life where you're doing sinful, wicked things, it's probably because you're thinking sinful, wicked thoughts. In other words, we have an obligation in our own spiritual lives, to follow the practices God has given us in Scripture so that we're reformed into the person of Jesus Christ. And a beautiful thing happens. The Holy Spirit works with these practices to make us like Jesus. But what if? What if 
the spiritual formation of your spouse depended on your spiritual practices? What if the spiritual formation of your children or grandchildren depended on your spiritual practices? What if the spiritual formation of your elders or deacons depended on your spiritual practices? Do you notice how Paul worded this in verse 9? What you have learned and heard and seen in me, this is what you're to practice. What if what God wants in your life is to make you into a Christ-like model so that your model draws someone else into Christ-likeness? What if that's exactly what God wants? In other words, what if the spiritual level of your household, your church, your small group, your Sunday school class, your place of employment depended on your rejoicing, your gentleness, your prayer life, your thought life? I think there's a weight there. In fact... I think the greatest way to be a great spouse is to be a spouse that rejoices in the Lord and is gentle toward your spouse and is uh, a person of prayer and is a person who thinks good thoughts. Great, the best way to be a great parent is to be a parent that models rejoicing, that models prayer, that models worship, that models surrender to God in thought life, that models gentleness, an employee, a church member, whatever it is, we're to model that for His glory and for His name's sake. Now, some of you in the room have tried all sort of things to, to kind of improve your life, and there's no shortage of self-help stuff out there. I've listened to my share of, uh, of leadership books and read my share of, of self-help books over the years, and there's a lot to be said about mindfulness and, and habit-forming changes and, and things of those sort. And, and there's reality in that, right? I mean, God has made us all in His image, and He's given us kind of a brain to use. And, and if you have changed something about yourself through habit change, I would commend you and say, amen, great, that's wonderful. We need people to kind of Treat their bodies better and treat other people better through habits. But let me say this to you very kindly and very carefully. We cannot just merely practice the practices of Christian experience and be right with God. This was written to the church first. In other words, Paul is writing to Christians who already have the Holy Spirit living inside them. And what these practices do is they invite the Holy Spirit to work in these practices to make us and remake us and reform us into the type of person God wants us to be, the person who looks like Jesus Christ. So Christian, they flow from a relationship with God. If you're here today and you're not yet in a relationship with Jesus Christ, here's what that means. You can do all you want to do to try to change your habits of rejoicing or thinking good things. And you may improve some areas of your life, but you'll never find the peace that God wants you to have without meeting Jesus first. You'll never find the real change that you need in life without meeting Jesus first. It starts with being in a relationship with the Lord. In a relationship with the Lord, then the sky's the limit for what God can do working through the spiritual practices described here and all over the places of Scripture, actually, in remaking us into the image of Christ. But you need a relationship with Jesus Christ. I would say to you, if you're in the room today and you have not yet trusted Jesus to be your Savior and Lord, the peace of God that He offers is only accessible through Christ. 
The change that you might need in your life is only accessible by meeting Jesus and trusting him to be your savior and forgiver. So we give an invitation here in just a moment. If you'd like to trust Jesus, I'd love to talk to you about receiving Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you're not comfortable coming forward. That's okay. If you'd like to take the tear tab in your worship guide, let me know your name and contact information. I'd love to talk to you at your convenience about what it means to be a Christ follower. Christian, for you in this room, here's the invitation. As we sing and as we pray in just a moment, here's what I'd like you to ask yourself. Who is it in my life and my relational circle that God wants to form me for? In other words, who do I need to model this kind of behavior for in my life? Would you stand with me? Our Lord, we come to you this day. As we've done already, we acknowledge our anxieties and our sinful thoughts lack of gentleness, things in our lives that aren't exactly what they ought to be, and we ask your forgiveness. Lord, we pray that you would make us into the type of believers and followers of Christ that would be about rejoicing, that would be about showing gentleness to one another, that would be about thinking good thoughts, godly thoughts, that would be about bringing our requests before you in prayer. Our Lord, we pray that you would remake us and reform us in the image of Christ, for our relationship with you and for that sake, but also for the sake of modeling that for our spouses, our children, our grandchildren, our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, our group members. Our Lord, we also pray in this moment for any in the room that have not yet trusted you as Lord and Savior. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you convict their sin, their heart of their sins. Show them their need that only through Christ is real change possible. And I pray, Lord, that you would turn them to you and bring them to a faith relationship with you. Father, move in our midst and make us the people you would like us to be. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.